New Testament sanctification typically happens in corporate context, not in isolation. It is appropriate to say that you can do many things by yourself, but sanctification is not one of those things. It's not possible to image the Trinity by living apart from the community of faith. When you read the Apostle Paul's letters, most of those letters were mainly written to local churches, corporate context, teaching those communities how to do mutual, reciprocal life together. And if you want to do mutual, reciprocal life together, one of the vital keys to robust community life is understanding the value and the appropriateness of corrective care. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for the Life Over Coffee podcast. I have an article for you. It is just over 2,700 words. I want to do a thorough treatment on the art and care of correction among friends, and that is the title of the article. If you wish to read, watch, or listen to this resource, you are welcome to do that. I have a podcast. I have the article, and I'm also putting it on video. All of these things are contained inside of the article, and so you can go to our website. You look for the art and care of correction among friends, and you will find all these resources plus several internal links. Many disciple makers, pastors, small group leaders, biblical counselors, they use our resources as homework assignments. That's why we try to put a lot of information in one place. And so if you want to instruct someone, maybe you are a Sunday school teacher and you want to instruct someone or a group of people on the art and care of correction among friends, then go to that article and you'll find all of that material embedded there. It would also be an outstanding discussion among a small group as well as a family. Let me get to let me get started here by sharing with you four verses that you're probably familiar with, but I want to get the ball rolling that way because we need to talk about maturing communities. And when I talk about maturing communities, I'm not just speaking of local churches, the letters that Paul was writing to but also to our families and other contexts where two or more Christians are gathered. In Luke 17, 1, Jesus said this, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. And then in James 5, 16, Jesus' half-brother said, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then John said in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then finally, the great apostle Paul said in 6, 1 of Galatians, brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. According to Paul's sanctification theology, People were a primary means of grace in helping each other grow in Christian maturity. The primary roadblock to personal growth and relational harmony are the sins we commit against each other. Let me illustrate. Do you remember the first time you heard yourself on an audio recording? 
Were you surprised at what you were hearing? I was. I don't remember the year. It was a long time ago, but I remember hearing myself on an audio tape, and I thought, wow, do I sound like this? Well, did you know that no one else in the room was surprised? I was the last one to know what everyone else already knew about me. Which is why you don't want to undervalue the opinions of others, the opinions that they have about you. They see things that you cannot see. My friends see things about me that I don't see. My children sometimes say, Dad, you're so predictable. A rich man is an individual who has mature Christian friends who are willing to help him grow into spiritual manhood. He understands how sin is unavoidable. He makes it easy for his friends to care for him by insisting that they be honest with their assessments. You should approach your friends and say, I will not let you off the hook. You need to confront me in ways that I need to be confronted. I'm going to make you be my friend, an appropriate friend, a friend that just not only identifies evidence of grace in my life, but a friend who will confront me appropriately when I need that kind of corrective care. And not just in the local church. The family is one of these fallen communities where sanctification can happen. It would be frustrating, or it would be a frustrating experience, to expect our children not to sin. And so we want to provide better goals that provide a context for them to succeed and fail while responding in godly ways to boast both inevitabilities. We want to encourage and motivate and celebrate with them when they succeed, and we want to comfort and confront and help them when they sin. And what better place for children to sin than in a family community where the parents equip them for life? A healthy community embraces the positive and negative aspect of people's lives while coming together to train one another mutually. The bad news is that we are sinners who live with other sinners in a fallen world. Sometimes when I do pre-marriage counseling, that's what I tell the the young loving couple that when you get married you're going to be in a 27 a 24/7 context two sinners in a box two sinners in a house that's the bad news where sinners live together in a fallen world but the good news is that the gospel is the perfect solution for sinners in a fallen world particularly two sinners in a box a husband and a wife and then when they add more sinners in that box little children well We're not in heaven yet. The implication is straightforward. If you're a Christian, you're not entirely sanctified. And from a Christian worldview, we understand complete sanctification happens when we step into eternity. But for now, we have, and I think it's appropriate to say, we have an incomplete salvation. And it generates two possible responses to the doctrine of sin. We could deny that sinfulness exists in our lives, or we can embrace sin's sobering reality by aggressively fighting against it in the context of friends who are doing similarly for the Lord's fame and our benefit. The sobering reality is that 
the time between God's salvation, when he regenerates you and our eternal destiny in heaven, well, we live a progressively sanctified kind of life. Occasionally, someone will say the gospel is for our salvation and the gospel is for our sanctification. I firmly believe this statement, and I would further assert that this belief is necessary for any Christian to live victoriously. Of course, one of the critical implications is that sin is always lurking in the shadows. There'd be no need for the gospel if there were no sin. If Adam had not fallen in Genesis 3.6, there would be no need for a Redeemer in Genesis 3.15. Thus, Christ came to save us from ourselves. The rub generally comes from how we live between the time of God's regeneration, when he saved us, and when he takes us home to heaven, when we will be entirely sanctified. There are three broad categories of people who struggle with the sin-is-present-with-us idea. They are, one, the deniers, two, the avoiders, and three, the fearful. Let's take a look at each one of those by turns. The deniers. These Christians say that sin does not exist once you become a Christian. They say, I am, I am dead to sin. Now, this perspective is a product of legalism. Legalists try hard to separate themselves from sin. They misinterpret John's perspective on sin in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, where he taught us that, or they believe that worldliness is in the world and not in us. John is teaching us that worldliness is in our heart. For the deniers to be faithful to their theology— that we are dead to sin, they have to ignore, they have to recategorize, they have to justify their sin. This posture is not tenable because it leads to personal frustration and relational conflict. It also dulls the conscience, the internal moral thermostat that signals to us that something is wrong. Once the conscience goes hard, the believer is flying blind. Those are the deniers, they say, we are dead to sin. And then you have the avoiders. I've already read to you First John 8. If we say you have no sin, if we say that we have no sin, we make God a liar, and the truth is not in us. Now, this group, the avoiders, they put their fingers in their ears and they scream, no, 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 ad infinitum. It does not exist. They are probably sincere, and they want to live for Christ, but they struggle dealing with personal failure head on. Perhaps they've had a bad taste from past authoritarian conditional relationships. Maybe their shaping influences have too much power over them, just enough to train them to avoid personal challenges. Sadly, they are stricken with the same sin as the deniers. The avoiders generally go from conflict to conflict, rarely resolving their issues. To be an avoider you also have to recategorize, ignore, rationalize your sin away, and the result is the same as the deniers, a hardened inter internal moral thermostat. 
People who don't like to deal with sin, you have the deniers, you have the avoiders, and then finally the fearful. This group knows they sin, but they don't want anyone to discover what is wrong with them. Transparency is a frightening proposition for them. To be vulnerable about their struggle, that is not a best-case scenario which manifests self-righteousness, a greater-than-better-than attitude, looking of elevating yourself and thinking that you are better or pretending to be better because you're actually denying and avoiding out of a heart of fear, and so you elevate yourself and maintain that greater-than-better-than self-righteous attitude. Many times these people come from discouraging and condemning relational communities. For example, they may have had harsh dads, or maybe they were part of a legalistic religious culture. They love grace. They don't like talking about their sin, so they overreact to their sin by denying the truthfulness of their sinfulness. It's hard for them to juxtapose sin and grace the way that Paul did in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, where he said, I am the foremost sinner, but I have received mercy. That is the perfect juxtaposition where you are not denying or afraid of what you were before Christ came into your life. To say we have no sin, whether you deny it, avoid it, afraid of it, is to say we do not need the gospel. This posture is a dangerous and heretical position for anyone to believe, for any believer to take. To mock and devalue the gospel by avoiding, by denying, by responding fearfully to the actual sin in our post-salvation experience is not tenable for the humble believer who wants to be feisty and optimistic about God's ability to overcome what's wrong with us. Jesus did not come for the healthy, the righteous, which brings us to the value and the beauty of small context of friends who are serious about transformation. Sanctification is a community event, a shared life between fellow sinners who the grace of God has saved. A small group of relationships, whether it's in the church group, whether it's in the family, but they embrace the reality of sin and the potential conflict will position itself to resolve its disputes in ways that glorify God. That is what a sanctification community can do. Let me illustrate. This happened a number of years ago. An elderly elderly lady from our church approached me about a complaint that she had with a friend. Her buddy was an irritant to her. She wanted me to do something about it. I'll never forget her reaction when I told her that in the spirit of Matthew 18, she needed to go and confront her friend. She was terrified. Her eyes widened, her mouth dropped slightly, and she whispered something like, I can't do that. The thought of confronting another person about their sin is one of the more difficult things for the Christian to do. I understand. I understand. I struggle with my obligation to others and my obedience to God to confront people. 
because of the inevitableness of saved sinners sinning against one another, there will always be opportunities to honor God by carefully and lovingly confronting others. And so as I told my dear friend, this is not primarily about bringing correction to her friend. It is in a secondary sense, but it is about honoring our Heavenly Father. Confronting appropriately is an obedience issue, and she needed to step up to the plate and honor God in a challenging situation by saying a few fearful things to her friend. Well, she did. And a few days later, my dear friend came back beaming. She obeyed God. She obeyed the go imperative in Matthew 18. And God surprised her with grace of a restored relationship. Those two elderly ladies remained friends and deepened their affection and care for each other. Now, there were a few things that we can learn from this lady's obedience to God and extended favor to her friend. I want to share five confrontational tips with you. The title of this podcast, the article, and the video you can read, watch, or listen is The Art and Care of Correction Among Friends. Here are five takeaways, five confrontational tips. Number one, affection. You should not confront a person with whom you do not have affection, at least affection in the sense they, like you, are in God's image. If you confront a person that you do not carry in your heart, there is a possibility you will not confront them carefully or lovingly. Paul had this kind of affection for the Corinthian church, which was the preface to his confrontational letter. Read the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You can feel Paul's affection for these mean, hard-hearted, abusive Corinthians. He genuinely loved them. My elderly friend loved her friend which is one of the reasons it went so well. Five confrontational tips. Number one, affection. Number two, thanksgiving. Paul said that he spent time before God, thanking God for them, those mean, abusive Corinthians. Are you thankful for the person you are about to correct? Does the person know you are grateful to God for them? Gratitude to God for the person you are about to correct will make a massive difference in how you go about correcting them. Your friend will be able to discern your gratitude for them. You cannot hide a bad attitude. Some people think that they can have a bad attitude to, toward a person and they can keep it on the down low and it's not perceived by anyone. It is perceived. You can always sense, you can always feel that there's something wrong between two people. Five confrontational tips. Number one, affection. Number two, thanksgiving. Number three, patience. One of the gospel's implications is God's patience with stubborn people. I am exhibit A. Typically, when I am impatient with an individual, I'm asking them to change. Almost always, I'm asking them to change in an area that I have somewhat mastered. Perhaps I have spent the past 5, 10, 15 years applying grace to that particular area of my life. 
If this kind of self-righteousness grips your soul, self-righteousness greater than, better than attitude, looking down on others who haven't quite arrived to where you are, well, if that kind of self-righteousness grips your soul, you must preach the gospel to yourself by reminding yourself how patient God continues to be with you. Number three, patience. Number four, encouragement. Always begin your time of correction by encouraging the person. Even Paul was able to speak about evidence of grace in the Corinthians. Now, most assuredly, they have done something right. So identify proof of God's gracious activity in their lives and let them know about it. Question for you. Are the people you generally correct more aware of your correction or your encouragement? Where's the accent mark? On your correction or on your encouragement? If it's on your correction, then your correction is too heavy and your encouragement is too light. The Lord loves the people he corrects. He confronts in a context of love. Question. What is the primary setting in which you correct people? Perhaps reading Hebrews 12, 6 would be beneficial at this point. Five confrontational tips. Number one, affection. Number two, thanksgiving. Number three, patience. Number four, encouragement. And then number five, think the best. Philippians 1, 6 teaches what God has begun, he will finish. God will complete what he began with his children. God is a finisher. Are you more prone to be discouraged? Are you more prone to complain about an unchanging Christian? Or are you more prone to rest and trust that God will finish what he has begun? In the heat of the moment, it is imperative that you preach this gospel message to yourself. God is a finisher. It may seem bleak. They may be irritating. And change seems such a long way off. But God is a finisher. Question. Can you rest? Can you trust in his excellent work in the life of the person you are correcting? What are you more aware of when you think about correcting another person? Are you more aware of your sin or theirs? This is a bonus confrontational tip. I have given you five already. They were affection for them, thanksgiving for them, patience with them, encouragement of them, and thinking the best about them. But how you answer this question, what are you more aware of? What are you thinking about more? The correcting of them, are you thinking about their sin or yours? How you answer that question will practically affect the person you are attempting to adjust. Christ appealed that when it comes to addressing the corruption of others, you must approach them with the awareness that there is this Hummer log stuck in your eye and there is only a speck in theirs. He could not be more explicit in Matthew 7, 3, 4, and 5. And trust me, this is so easy to forget. 
Paul seemed to never forget he was the worst sinner that he knew in 1 Timothy 1.15. And though Paul did not wallow in what he was, he never wanted to forget who he was before the Lord found him. This thinking is counterintuitive for the self-righteous, self-esteeming Christian. For Paul, it was a healthy way to think. This theological point was a key component for him when correcting others. He was acutely aware of who the biggest sinner was. Rarely was he harsh, unkind, uncharitable to those who needed his admonition. One of the questions that I have asked my counselees throughout the many years that I've been doing counseling is, quote, who do you think the biggest or the worst sinner is in this office right now from my perspective? I know the correct answer to that question will guard my heart regarding how I think about myself and how I think about them. It will also mitigate temptations to sin like unkindness and harshness and uncharitable judgments, condescension, impatience, and general rudeness. Sadly, I have committed these sins with those I have served. I get the log and spec dynamic reversed each time I sin in these ways. A practical way to adjust my heart biblically is by sharing the following with my friends. This is a paraphrase of something that I have shared many times with counselees. Quote, what I'm about to say is from my perspective, not yours. I do not know what all you have done, but this is what I have done. I have put Christ on the cross. No matter what you have done, you have not done anything close to the sin that I have committed against my Lord, end quote. If they are humble, they will want to argue the point with me by saying that they are a worse sinner than I am. That is a healthy argument for two Christians to have. If you have this perspective settled in your soul now, the log and the speck and what you have done to Christ is worse than what that person has done for you, then here are four additional tips as I wrap up this podcast that will serve you if you make them part of how you correct others. Number one, heart exam. Make sure your motives are right. You must have their best interest in mind. Esteem them more than yourselves. Count them more significant than yourselves. If you than yourself, if you are not other centered in your correction, you can assume that your correction will not go well for them or you. Examine your heart. Number two. There's always missing stuff. You are not omniscient. There have been too many times when I believed I had all the data needed to correct the person only to find out afterward that I did not know the whole truth. You and I are not God. Assume you don't know everything there is to know about a situation. Number three, ask questions. Because you are missing stuff, a wise person will ask questions rather than assume that he already knows everything when correcting someone. Let me give you four sample questions that approach the person with the log in your eye rather than telling the person that he has a log in his. This is the, pro- the approach that you want to take if you do have the log in your eye. Here are four simple questions. Number one, I heard you say, and then fill in the blank, is that correct? Do you hear the humility in that? Do you hear the lack of omniscience in that? I heard you say, and then you fill in the blank. Is that correct? Number two, is that what I heard? Tell me what I am missing. 
Number three, you know that I can miss things from time to time. Will you help me fill in the blank so I can understand better? And then finally, number four, the other day I heard you say, fill in the blank, and it sounded a bit harsh from my perspective, but I probably misunderstood. What am I missing? Can you help me with this? Hard exam. We're missing stuff and ask questions. And then the fourth additional tip, be confessional. If the confronting person is humble enough to share his struggles, he releases the confronted from the fear of transparency. Let them know what they already know about you, that you're not perfect either. Once they know you struggle, they will likely tell you their challenges. If you come across as having it all together, it will inhibit them from sharing openly with you. And so with specificity, share appropriately, not inappropriately, but appropriately, how you are flawed and watch them relax and open up before your eyes. Additional tip number four, be confessional. The title of this podcast is The Art and Care of Correction Among Friends. Here's a short call to action. If you plan to correct others, hoping they will listen to your correction and respond by confessing their sin, then you must lead them by being what you want them to become. And to do that well, here is your homework assignment. Would you take the time to go back through what I just shared with you? You can find this article on our website. If you go to the bottom of the article, you can print it off into a PDF. But would you go through and would you would you highlight each question? I ask a lot of questions through here. I'm not going to repeat them now, but would you highlight them? Answer the questions prayerfully, reflectively, and transparently. And then for a bonus, will you share your answers with a friend, even a friend, the friend that you plan on confronting? The art and care of correction among friends. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.